Hey, it's Arrow. PodFest brings together three different conversations from musicians to authors, doctors, environmentalists, and cooks in their own kitchen. It's real people with real stories. We kick things off with actress Katie Dickey from Game of Thrones. Then we're stepping into the very creative world of Catherine McCormick from So You Think You Can Dance. Our third conversation is all about Barbara Streisand. Author Neil Gabler takes us on a tour of Streisand, redefining beauty. This is PodFest 56. We are unplugged and totally uncut with Kate Dickey. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. I mean, boy, this movie in itself, I got to tell you, after experiencing the film, this is one of those movies where people are going to be sitting around going, I remember where I was when I experienced it the first of many times. (laughs) Oh, that's so kind of you to say. Uh, We had such a brilliant time making knuckle dust, so it means a lot to hear that. Thank you. To be on demand, it, do you still get the red carpet treatment? Do you guys still get to go out there, shake hands, kiss babies and things like that? Or is, is it a different kind of world now? Uh, it's, it, it, at the moment, it's a, a very different world. Um, you know, it's all online and Zoom, which is really um, sad. And, uh, you know, it's such a great part of, of the job is connecting with fans and, and getting to meet people. So... You know, it's it's a tough, tough time for the industry just now. Um, it really is. The movie we're talking about is Knuckle Dust, which is now on demand. I was shocked to learn that it started out as a graphic novel. That just that just deepens it even more and makes it more valuable. Uh, yeah. I mean, James is an amazing, amazing guy. And uh, I applaud his ambition and vision and all the things that he, he did with Knuckle Dust. He was, he was a beautiful man to work with. It, this is more than just a Fight Club-style movie. I mean, there is so much storyline in this. What was it like for you to work with all the other actors and stuff to just really kind of just bring it all together as one moment? Uh, I had... It, it was a wonderful time working in the film, but actually I was quite isolated in the part I made because... Most of my um, scenes were in the interrogation room with Mo, wonderful, wonderful Mo Dunford, who plays Brody in the film. And my character, Catherine Keaton, is interrogating him. I'm the head of police. Um, so all of my scenes bar near the end, I filmed in isolation with Mo um, and and did a few other scenes with some of the other characters, Jamie Winston, Dave Bibby, um, James himself. Um, so we were filming in one part of the film and then we moved on, they moved on into the main kind of, you know, fighting sequence, club scenes. Um, so it was really exciting for me to see the film at the end because I'd only read those scenes. I hadn't seen them being made, the club scenes, uh, and what a ride you go on with the film. I was going to ask you about that, what it was like to see it for the very first time, because, I mean, to be um, on the set is one thing, but to experience it in a theater with people around you or even at home with people around you has got to be a total different experience. 
Oh, it was. It was amazing. I watched it at home with my, my partner um, in the living room. And and I said to him before we started, this film is a real Pandora's box. There's <laughs> layer upon layer upon layer. No one is who you think they are, so be ready. And we spent a lot of the film just looking at each other with our mouths hanging open <laughs> and... Um, it was just so exhilarating and just to see James's vision up on, on screen and some of the beautiful moments with the illustration bit and, and when you go back in time and all the elements getting pulled together, I loved watching it. And, you know, as hard as it is having no cinemas, this is what the beauty is about having, you know, Knuckle Dust is available on video on demand. It's available in all digital platforms that you can buy a movie from, you know, iTunes, Amazon, you know, all these. So at least we can still reach an audience and it's not, you know, we're not kind of, you know, having to hold everything back. But it is a shame not to see this in the cinema because it's such a big, you know, energetic movie. Um, so I hope people enjoy it at home just as much. I hope you've got a big telly at home um, and put the sound up loud. You know, you, know you, you talk about the energy of the movie. You're a main part of that energy, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you would finish one of those scenes inside that room because, I mean, you, you just throw yourself right into that role. When, when you do that, do you sit down in a chair afterwards and go, whew, holy cow, Kate, you did it, girl. Oh, no, never. I'm always going, oh, please, can we go again? I didn't do it well enough for but actually, you know, my main experience was with Mo Dunford and James Kermat, the director, and on and, and the crew, obviously, who were incredible. And uh, uh, you know, in between takes, you know, I'd be at, you know, Keaton's, you know, giving Brody a, you know, a real grilling, and then in between takes, Mo and I would be howling with laughter and and having good chats and. Oh, gosh, I would love to work with him again. He's just incredible. Incredible person and incredible actor. So it was a joy, a real joy. Now, I was going to ask you about that, about would, is he one of those people that you would automatically say yes to? And are there writers that you would you would look at their manuscripts and go, oh, automatic yes. I don't even have to think about it. Automatic yes. I mean, like, I've been so lucky in my career to work with some incredible um, writer-directors, you know, Andrea Arnold, Rob Eggers, Paul Wright. Oh, gosh, so many. You know, if any of them came knocking again, I would always be available. But I'm also just also about the story. So if I read a script and it jumps out and grabs me, um, you know, I might never have heard of the director before, Um but if the writing's incredible and and you feel a connection, then yeah, for me it's all about the story and 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 being able to give people voices and tell their stories. Now you you've got a busy twenty twenty one coming up here. You've got a long list of features that are on their way. Yeah, I've got a few things backed up actually waiting to come out. Um, I'm trying to think. I did a great film called Our Ladies, directed by Michael Caton-Jones, which is based on an Alan Warner book called The Sopranos, and it's about a, a group of Catholic schoolgirls, and they're taking part in a choir competition in Edinburgh, and I'm the, the nun 
teacher and choir master and we go to Edinburgh and it all doesn't go to plan. Um, I've got another film. Oh, uh, The Green Knight with David Lowery. Um, it's to come out this year, which was an incredible experience. Um, yeah, oh gosh, another film I did, a beautiful film I did with a director called Kathy Brady called Wildfire, set in the borderlands in Ireland and northern between Northern Ireland and Ireland. So, yeah, quite a lot of things just kind of biding their time, um, waiting to be released now with, with COVID and things. It's just, I guess, finding the right time. Um, so, yeah. I've been lucky to be busy. Well, we're very lucky to be on the receiving end of you being lucky because you have provided a stage for us to escape with. And I can't thank you enough for giving yourself permission to be a creative artist. Uh, oh, that's so lovely. Honestly, what a lovely, lovely thing to say. Um, you know, as I said, our industry's you know, it's a struggle just now. So words of encouragement like that are just, so beautiful and, and really appreciated. Thank you. You bet. Please come back to this show anytime in the future, Kate. The door is always going to be open for you. Ah, oh, I will. And thank you again for having me. And just to say to your audience, give Knuckle Dust a go. It's a real, as I said, Pandora's box of a film. And you'll go on such a ride. And James Kermack is such a, a, a name to look out for as well. He's a, a fantastic director. So thank you again. Arrow, you still have extra time, you know. Oh, I do. How much time? Because I got lots of questions for her. Yeah, you got, you, yeah. got, you got till 20 after. Oh, see, look at Mike. Well, there you go. There, there, there's a... So, <laughs> I love I'm, I'm it. Done a, I'm done a premature goodbye. No, no goodbyes. Go ahead. <laughs> well, with, with the quality of movies that you're doing and the television shows that you're doing, I mean, for you to step into that role, do you ever go in there with butterflies in your stomach and going, okay, how... How are we going to do this one so it's not compared to the other one? I need to stand out just as much. Oh, I, well, actually, I don't really think about myself in the mix as in, you know, I need to stand out or that. My main focus is on that character and telling their story as best I can. And if you are lucky enough to work with, you know, an amazing writer-director like James or, you know, some of the wonderful people I've worked with, or all of them, I should say, then, yeah, I've always got trepidation because I'm always worried about not giving the character the voice that they deserve and the voice they should have. So I've always got, you know, lists of questions or things that I want to kind of um, collaborate with the director about and ask for advice or opinion or at least find a way to wiggle in that suits the tone and suits the character and, and tells their story as, as truthfully as possible, which is the most important thing to me. Is, is it like voice acting where we have to sit there and go through a personal question like, who am I talking with? Who am I reaching? Who is this person? How old are they? I mean, you really kind of put yourself into that zone so that when you, when, when you, when you start using your physical voice and your acting ability, it's like you are that person. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got quite a process. I mean, I when I first read through a script, I'll read through it a few times, and then I just start writing questions. I have so many questions about background, where she was born, how she was brought up, what class, money, clothes, music. 
so many things and sometimes I answer those questions and sometimes they're, you know, I never go back to them, but they start the thought process. I also use a lot of music. I make up playlists. Um, I have a playlist of music that I think only the character would listen to or playlists that will help me get into the right mood for scenes. Um, I use paintings and photos and... You know, I, I'm always searching for the character, and it's not like I'm like, oh, there they are, they look like her. It's about essences, and I'll get little feelings about a certain piece of music or a painting or a, a picture, and, um, yeah, I'll look at them a lot or listen to them over and over again or, yeah, just trying to find their voice and, and what's going on deep, deep inside and what makes them act the way they do and, and and things like that. That's so fascinating that you look at pictures because as a writer, I will go and while I'm building my stories in my books, I've got pictures in front of me of who that character is because I have to be able to look into their eyes to bring their parts forward. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I'm like that with paintings or street photography. Um, you know, I've got a lot of photography books and there'll be, a, you know, and I'll go and sit in the park a lot and just people watch and I'll suddenly see someone who's maybe carrying themselves in a certain physicality that I just go, oh, that feels right, that feels real or maybe by the way they're, you know, dressed or talking or I'm just constantly looking for essences that of truth and, um, yeah, it's, it's a real kind of honour to get to explore um, things like that and, and you know, go really deep with, you know, the kind of characters I play are, are, are tend to be quite dark in many ways and have secrets and baggage and, you know, like we all do, really. Do you ever get caught people watching? In other words, when you're sitting on that park, park bench watching people and they turn and look at you and you're like, oh, <laughs> do, you ever, <laughs> do you ever have that reaction? I mean, I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good at being subtle now, but I do worry that I look like, you know, a creepy lady on the bench <laughs> just staring at people going by and, you know, I'm, you know, yeah, I don't follow people or anything like that, but I'm very curious about the way people will maybe walk about in public or do they stare at the ground? Do they have eye contact? Do they... Yeah, I, I'm fascinated, fascinated by human nature and human behavior. The, the Native Americans, what they do is they, they call that the silent watcher, which is they believe that, that it's the power of the wolf inside of you that is sitting there underneath the brush and just watching the world, studying everything that's going on. That's a powerful totem in your life. Wow. Wow. That is really powerful. Um Wow, that's just so much um, sort of imagery that you've given me there. Um, yeah, I think it's important um, as an actor anyway, if you're going to be telling people stories, it's very important to be, you know, observing and um, empathetic and be like a sponge and be able to soak up things so that you can carry baggage with a character because your character's life doesn't start where the film starts, you know. So you need to come on to you know, into the film with the with the baggage of the, their past, um, whatever that is. Um sometimes the audiences never find out, but it's important as an actor to carry a past for your character just to make them whole and, and truthful. 
You know, one, one of the things that you guys get the opportunity to do when, when you're on the set, there's a lot of extras around you. I've always looked at the extra like, like when I dream and there's people in my dreams that I don't see or I don't know. I call them my extras. You experience that on two different levels in probably your own dreams as well as on the set. What is that like for you to be with extras? Wow. You know, you, wow. You're coming out with some really amazing, profound things, which I'm loving. Um, I love being around supporting artists, actually, because they come from all walks of life, all ages, all backgrounds. And I'm always asking them, how did you get into this? Or what brought you to this job? Because it's quite a unusual, specific job. But you talking about extras in life, it makes me think, because I always talk about my characters, like I now have this gaggle of women that kind of come around with me because I've got so deep into their kind of psyche that it's really hard to let go of them. So I've ended up with this kind of group of women of past characters that I've said goodbye to, but I've not quite managed to let go. And I feel like I've got them, as, you know, as I go through life now, I've got this kind of gang that come with me, you know, and... Uh, yeah, you just struck a chord there when you were talking about extras. It really makes me feel the way I do about my, my characters that I carry with me. Now, you, you were talking earlier about you, you bring like a like the sounds of music with you as well when you step into the character. Does, does that mean that from now on, the memories that you have of those songs will be attached to the movie? Or Because in radio, I, I, I don't have real memories with music. I have studio memories. This is where I was, what studio I was in while I was playing that song. Yes, all the time. I can be, like, I did this film called Couple in a Hole about a couple living in a hole in the ground and it's one of the saddest, saddest, darkest characters I've ever played. And she was so grief-stricken, Karen, this character I play. And um, my kind of theme tune for her, the thing I played over and over again, was a track called Roads by a band called Portishead and it came out in the 90s and I'll be really quick so I know we're running out of time but I hadn't listened to Portishead for years and I was searching for Karen's kind of song the one that would get me really in the mood and I came across Road and I was like oh I've not listened to it for years it's perfect cut to the edit I goes out to do some um, ADR for the edit and Tom Geans the director of Couple in a Hole said to me do you know who I've got for the soundtrack this amazing band called Beach and I was like oh I don't know them and he said oh it's Jeff Barrow he used to be in Portishead do you remember them and I was like no that's that's what I picked for Karen's song so there was so much serendipity in that um film so anytime I hear roads I just instantly cry now because Karen was so sad you know and um, I just can't listen to that song without being back in the hole um, in her grief it's funny funny the memories music so yeah yeah I have lots of classical music does that lots of uh, a composer called Arvo Pert this Hungarian composer I use a lot of his music, which is incredible, and um, so yeah, lots of triggering memories when I when I hear him as well. I have had the most brilliant time having a conversation with you. I am so grateful that we got to meet today. Oh, listen, I am too. You've been an absolute delight and very profound, which has been lovely. Um, lots of food for thought. So 
Thank you again for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. You be brilliant today, okay? Well, I will, and you too. Thanks again. Unplugged and totally uncut with Catherine McCormick. Hi, I'm wonderful. I love it when you How say you? I'm doing wonderful as well, man. It's you know you wake up, and the sun is shining. You just enjoy the day as you go forward. It's wonderful. It's actually I'm on the uh, west coast, so I got to watch the sunrise as I woke up. So it was beautiful. That's that's my favorite time to write is when the sun is rising because there's just so much energy and there's so much newness in the day. Mm-hmm. And it's so still. There's something really, I feel like, really sacred about it. It's magical. Now, now, being that dancer and that creative mind, when you see something like the sun rising, d- does it affect you as well like it does other creative minds in the way that you can see the flow of nature around you? Of course. I feel the most connected to myself and spiritually connected when I'm in nature. Um, there's something um, so peaceful I know for me, it just really calms my heart and my mind, and it reminds me of what's important in a world where we have so much like social media and competition and different things. I feel like being in nature is something that really just strips all of that away and is a space that inspires me to be the most authentic. So yes, very much so. My studio overlooks a forest, and and so it's it's fascinating to sit here and watch the the uh, the barred owls that will come and sit outside this window, and it's like it's, there's just something special about nature, like you said. That's gorgeous. I want to see that. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's just one of those things. I've, I've always believed that animals and humans communicate, and I've studied animal spirituality and stuff like that. And I've always thought that animals teach us to dance. Is that true? Hmm. I'm sure it is, you know. I think everything's inspired by something. So I think down to the purest form, you know, people started dancing and it, and it was just from their heart space and what felt good. But I'm sure that, you know, people would watch animals move and, you know, everything comes full circle and all goes together. So I definitely believe, you know, the way the wind blows, you know, on the trees, the way animals move, insects and their little twitches and different things like that. I think it's all in one and so inspired by that. So while you're dancing, are you the, the sway of the wind or are you an animal? You know, it depends what story I'm telling because I think I can be a little bit of both. Um, I feel like this season on the show, it's been more of this way of the wind. I've done a lot of contemporary uh, with my girl Tate, but I I love telling stories in every way. I always try to call myself a mover rather than just one style of dance because I truly just love telling stories. So however I need to move my body in order to do that, um, I feel like is the most rewarding thing. So sometimes the animal, sometimes the wind. I don't know. It depends on what day it is. What is that one magical thing that you that you have to come up with that in, in sharing that story with dance? Because in reality, until So You Think You Can Dance came on TV, we just thought dancing were steps that you memorized. But it is a story. How do you break that ice to those up-and-coming dancers so that they can feel exactly what you're trying to sell, basically? This season has been such an incredible process because I am working with all the kids. We're all working with all the kids, but I get to personally work with Tate on a one-on-one basis daily. And there's something about looking into a child's eyes 
You know, they're so pure and they feel emotions so deeply that I feel like she's teaching me so much about how to be honest like in those spaces. But I'm also reminding her, you know, not to be so focused on what she looks like because for her, especially as a ballet dancer, contemporary dancer, you're, you're trained to constantly look, on the, look in the mirror and be a perfectionist. But I'm reminding her that the first step in telling a story is forgetting what you look like and truly knowing that when you're in the moment of something, it's the most beautiful space you could be in. You look the most beautiful and you have no idea what you look like and you're showing people those vulnerable spaces, one, but also really helping her to dive into her history, you know, her life, her backstory, the stories of her friends and make every single story that we tell something that's personal so that when you walk on the stage you truly feel and believe and know that you're making an impact in the world and that there's someone even if it's just one person there's someone that will be affected by what you're doing and then we realize that dance is greater than ourselves and we've been given a platform that we can truly like send a message to the world of inspiration of hope you know of joy and so for that I feel like it's been a beautiful process to really watch her to commit to what she's doing do you ever find yourself in a moment like that where you're watching somebody's story come to life through their dance that you've got to go write something down because there's so much energy going on that it can't stay inside of you Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's writing for me, but for me, it feels like my heart's going to explode out of my chest. It's just this feeling like I watch other people moving and my heart starts to race and I start to get energy throughout my whole body and I can almost envision myself doing what they're doing. Um, And then sometimes it is thought-provoking and it makes me... um, you know, think of different pastimes or, you know, maybe even a space in my heart that was never healed from something and it makes me want to forget someone or it makes me um, kind of think deeper into spaces that maybe I've never thought of. So, yes, you're right. Or maybe even have a conversation with someone, you know, that I haven't in a long time. It, art is powerful. It's, it's the same way as a martial artist as well. Even when we're going through our forms and our pumses and stuff like that, just the, the way that the body has to create harmony, the feet have to work with that with the arm and all that kind of stuff. How do you find that communication in your body for it to work together as one? Wow. Is it a a level of trust? It is. It's a level of trust. Dance is not just your body. You know, it's where you hold your mindset. It's where your heart is. It's where your passions lie. It's where your spirit is. It's everything. And if your spirit doesn't come to life through your movement, then it's not dance. It's just moves that you've learned and anybody can do. So I think it's a really deep process. If you're going to let yourself truly move, it's having peace in who you are and really finding, you know, what you want to say and figuring out who you are so that you're not shaken by others' opinions of you so that you can truly you know, move how you feel you would, not how you feel people would want you to. Um, so it's a full body connection. And then partnering is a whole other thing because it's all about listening and the resistance that you have with a partner. Um, and if you're so stuck on yourself as an individual, you'll constantly run into them because you're not listening to the weight in their body and the resistance that they give you in order to be one person when you're on stage. 
don't, so don't you don't you love that moment that before a dancer does go out there that they it's almost like they they travel to another dimension it's a transformation of sorts they almost disappear from the present because they know they're going someplace I agree. I felt that last night. Every time I step on the stage, I feel like you practice a dance for so long. So short, actually, on the show. But you practice it so many times. And then all of a sudden you step on stage and you you know you have like 10 seconds before the music starts. And it almost feels like you start floating. And you don't even remember anything. You just move because your body knows how to and you're just in this heightened moment in time that feels like it lasts forever but it goes so quick at the same time it's an incredible feeling when when, when you talk of the short routine I, I i can't imagine how you can get all of that in such a short time period you, your, your body must be going must be really pumping hard the heart and all that kind of stuff because i mean when, when you know that it can go longer because you've done it before but you've only got so much time and you've got to be on time great i agree it, the show definitely gives you a pressure because you only have such a short amount of time to show so much but um the choreographers are really brilliant in how they pace their dances and the way that they tell their stories that i feel like these minute and a half second um dances these 90 second dances are actually very effective um, so it, it feels like a full picture, a full story when you're doing it, although it is very short. Do you ever get to improv or do you have to pretty much stick to the script? Stick to the script. Really? Yeah. I mean, we improv and we have fun behind the scenes every day. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to the show, we do exactly what we, we rehearsed for, especially because it's live. So there's not room for error. You know, there's room for the magical moments and things just happen. And I've had times where like you fall out of something or something goes a little different with a prop and you have to improv. You know, as a professional, it's just what you do. So I think the moments that we improv are probably moments that people have no idea to improv. <laughs> now, now, the popularity of dance in 2016, is there a side of your personality that, that, that feels incredible that what Gene Kelly brought to American films is, is still very much alive but it's just a different medium it is dance is really thriving right now it's an incredible time to be an artist and be a dancer because there's so much opportunity for it um so it's such a beautiful time i mean it's it's evolved and things are different but you know dance has always been and always will be inspired by classics like gene kelly yeah Speaking of movies, the film Like Air, it's 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 a new age kind of a high school competition. Um, so it's actually a documentary that follows three kids on a journey of their like a competition convention um, as they go throughout the country. So it's not high school; they're in high school, but it's an actual convention called Dance Makers um, that they're touring with. And I'm a teacher; I'm a faculty member on with the company, and so I get to just be myself. You know, I teach classes and I help motivate them. I love speaking when I'm in classes, so I really try to help shift their mindset from a way of thinking that you know. Competition and, and winning a title is the most important thing to actually realizing that success comes when you carry your heart and your mind in a space that you're actually allowing yourself to be free in what you do and not letting your movement be affected by wanting to impress other people or wanting to win a medal or become popular because of it. 
Because um, truly, when we do that, our movement is contrived as something that isn't of us. It's not pure. So true art happens when your heart feels free enough to actually share what's unique in yourself, what's authentic. So it's a beautiful process of watching their mindsets change as they go on this year-long journey of regional and national competition. Don't, don't you see a film like this as being a great invitation to bring people in that, that are so close to wanting to know more about dancing, but now this, this inspires them to grow forward? Oh, I agree 100%. If anything, it reminds them um, who they can be, you know, in the dance industry, how, how powerful their voice and their heart can be to where the next generation comes up and we actually make a difference in who we are as people in the dance industry so that we can change it for the better. You know, rather than just always focusing on what we're doing, that's great and you become really strong, but it's not helpful when it comes to actually making an impact in the world. We need to strengthen who we are as people and use dance as our catalyst to carry those qualities into the world and make a difference. And I think a lot of times these days it gets a little reversed. It does. It does. Part of this movie was uh, filmed in Myrtle Beach. How'd you like being down here in the, in the South? Oh, I love Myrtle Beach. I grew up in Augusta, um, Georgia, so I'm used to being, you know, in South Carolina, Florida area for vacations. And so Myrtle Beach is a place that I've gone so many times. And so we got to follow these um, kids in this convention around uh, the U.S., but we ended in Myrtle Beach, and that's where the final competition was. You, but I love, I love South Carolina. You, you talk about growing up in Augusta. That says so much about the way you dance then, because you know down here in the South, there is a flow about the South that, that people, or, you know, they just kind of grow up with it. Yeah. Even, even, in the, even in the rolling hills, you can, you, can, you can see the flow of dance inside the rolling hills here in the South. Oh, I agree. I agree. So then, what, what is the next step for you personally? Is, is it time for you to create a show on the digital platform to where, where, you, where dancing becomes important in, in the way of where you can have one-on-one relations with, with, with the camera and stuff? Or what, what is that one thing? Because it's, we're all waiting for you to grow into that next direction. Thank you. I was actually just talking to my husband about this last night, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm really thinking about it because I know what's important to me. I know what I love, and that is motivating others. I love movement. I love telling stories. But the, my biggest thing is I love connecting to people and reminding them of their worth. That is my favorite and most fulfilling thing in the entire world. So I'm still figuring it out. Is that something that maybe I create myself, you know, or is that of being a part of something that maybe I haven't discovered yet? Or maybe I have, you know, to be honest, being on this season is so you think is so much of one of my biggest dreams, even though I've, I've done this show multiple years, this season is different. But I'm able to be pushed to the maximum capacity in my dance ability, but I'm also able to be a voice and let people know what's important to my heart and truly make an impact in a young girl's life, you know, as she starts to step into the dance industry and help shift her heart and her perspective. And I feel like for me, that success because that's what I love in every capacity. So I think it's continuing to chase those moments and those connections and a lot of times it's going to be in spaces that America may not know or may not seem bigger to the world but to me it's about that in between the hearts that you connect to behind the scenes people are involved in everything that you do and I feel like I 
remain intentional with the people I'm involved with, involved with in every project, then I'm doing what I love. See, that, that says so much about you. It's, it's, I always call that the Carlos Santana because Carlos Santana has all these people on stage, but you never see him up front. You're this person that wants to share everything you've been shared with. It, that that so, says so yeah. much about you. Thank you. I absolutely love it. Is that your mom and dad coming out in you, or where does that side of your personality come from? Um, I, honestly, I think it's a spiritual gift. I think it's something, you know, I've been on a long journey of figuring out, you know, my beliefs and different things like that, and I feel like it's all rooted in love and just knowing that we were created on this earth to, like, for human connection. You know, and I just feel I'm very sensitive to energies. I can almost walk into a room and I know what people are thinking or if they're having a hard time, even if I've never met them or, you know, I can kind of just feel that and I carry it. So with that, I've learned how to really listen to those energies and speak out on them and have conversations with people and truly ask how they are, you know, and just have an awareness for that. And I, I honestly think it's a gifting. It's what makes my heart race and what, at the end of the day, makes me feel like is my reason for being here. Unplugged and Totally Uncut with Neil Gabler. I'm doing very well. How are you? Doing very well. You have written a book here that is very exciting to a lot of people, sir. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate your saying that. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, because we've seen the pictures, we've seen the movies, we've heard the music, but we've never been able to go behind the scenes like you have. Well, I appreciate that very much. It's very kind of you to say. What is it about Barbara Streisand that was magnetic for you? Well, here's an interesting thing. You know, I was not a gigantic Barbara Streisand fan when I set out to write this book. I'll tell you why I, I decided to write it. And that's because I feel that she is among those, that handful of entertainers who not only redefine their art, and I think she really has redefined singing in a number of ways and influenced uh, singers who've come after her, but she is also in that handful of people, entertainers, who help define the culture. I mean, Frank Sinatra and the Beatles and Elvis Presley and, you know, there aren't all that Marlon Brando. There aren't all that many of them. So, you know, I wanted to kind of take her measure and to describe the way in which she impacted American culture and also the way that she changed her own art. And, and in the process of doing that, examine what makes her great. I think that's a, that's a question that is not asked often enough of entertainers. What makes them great? We feel it, but we don't look at the mechanics of it. it it's almost like that Barbara has been that actress or that even that performer that always lived in the moment. What was ever around, she became a part of it somehow, some way. And I don't want to call her wall paint. I just want to say that she was alive in that moment. She is. And I t I'll tell you, that's one of the things that I think appeals to her fans. You know, there's a different relationship that fans of Barbara Streisand have to her than most fans have to whatever performer, entertainer uh, they happen to adore. And, and I think part of that is that they feel a more intimate relationship with her because she is more like them. 
Now, before Barbara Streisand came along, if we're just looking, for example, at, at movies, uh, let's look at that aspect of her career. You know, most actresses were voluptuous or they were elegant, but they were always beautiful. They were always conventionally beautiful. Barbara Streisand was not conventionally beautiful in the sense that her predecessors were. Uh, you know, she was very ethnic looking. Uh, she acted in a rather ethnic way. She took a lot of abuse for the way she looked and for the way she acted. But her fans understood that Barbara Streisand was one of them. She was like them. And I think that was a tremendous, tremendous connection that she created. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think I first fell in love with Barbara Streisand and began following her when Casey Kasem on American Top 40 talked about that she would not have anything done with her nose and that she would be able to create from that moment forward by being herself. That, that's an interesting point because you know she began in this business when she was rather young. She was just a teenager. And of course, everybody told her, you've got to get a nose job. The, the first review of her in Variety, the Hollywood trade paper, was she needs a schnoz bomb. And so everyone said, you're never going to make it unless you get rid of that nose. And she was adamant that she wasn't going to get a nose job. And in fact, her longtime manager, he's managed her virtually since the time she was a teenager to now, Marty Ehrlichman, saw her at a nightclub in New York uh, when she was just starting out. And he went up to her and he said, I think you're going to be a star. I would like to represent you. And her first question to him was, do you think I need a nose job? Hmm. And he answered, I think you're perfect just the way you are. And now it's almost 60 years that he's been representing her. You know, it's it's uh, her beauty is is just the way she is because in my mind, several decades later, a star is born is still one of the most gorgeous Barbara Streisands I've ever seen in my life. Well, you know, I defy, the, the book is subtitled "Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power," and I take all of those things seriously because she really did redefine what we think of as beautiful. You know, when she came on the scene, Barbara Streisand was not regarded as beautiful, uh, but it was Pauline Kael, the New Yorker film critic, who said of her, and I think this is just a, a great characterization. You know, she said that Barbara Streisand taught us that talent is beauty, and you know, there's all the cliches about you know inner beauty and, and how it manifests itself in outer beauty. But I really think that with Barbara Streisand, we saw that process at work. We saw that the inner quality she had, her talent, her moxie, her fortitude, her kind of moral drive, all of those things translated into physical beauty. So that when we looked at her, we were looking at a beautiful woman. And we weren't the only ones. I mean, if you look at the, the list of men who fell in love with her from Warren Beatty to Ryan O'Neill to Don Johnson to Pierre Trudeau the, the former uh, premier of Canada I mean she had a long list of romances with extremely handsome men who obviously fell into the same spell that many of her fans did now, you know that this book has got to open up a door for you to look into the lives of other women who have also had struggles like this, but yet have, have become extremely strong in our personal lives. Well, I don't intend to write another book like this because I think Barbara Streisand is the one sort of who paved the way. But you're absolutely right. When you look at, at so many uh, entertainers who followed in her wake who might not 
have been accepted had it not been for Barbra Streisand. Uh, I mean, Beth Midler, would she have been accepted? Janis Joplin, uh, even today, Lady Gaga, and Adele, who may be the Barbra Streisand of this generation. I'm not sure that had Barbra Streisand not came along and said, look it, you know, talent is beauty, and I'm not going to change. And you're still going to like me. That those that those women would not have been accepted in the way they have been accepted. I had a program director tell me one time when I was playing music on 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 a radio station that he says, "If you don't learn how to speak like Barbara Streisand over the intro of her song, you are going to destroy your listeners." Because he believes this is what he said. He said Barbara Streisand fans are making love while she's singing, and if you destroy that moment, then you're not doing what what Barbara set out to do. Well, actually, that's a very you know astute observation because you know she Stewart said, and I love this line. She said, "I was the girl that never got asked to the prop, oh. and I appeal to all the girls who never got asked to the prop." And and so you know that intimacy that I mentioned earlier, that's exactly right. I mean, they they connect to her. Uh, they understand the heartbreak, the loneliness, the pain, and her talent was really first of all that she experienced those things, you know, that's not a talent, but that she took that experience and then expressed it through her music and through her films, because her films are all about, they're not about conventionally beautiful women who land the guy at the end, in fact, they're about women who have this very, very difficult hill to climb, and in almost every one of her movies, when you think about it, you know, she doesn't land the man at the end of the movie, in fact, she's often lonely or at least alone at the end of the film. And that's sort of a unique quality that Barbara Streisand imparted, but it's one that her fans connected to. And not just women, but, you know, she had a huge gay following. Uh, She has a gigantic minority following. I think anybody who felt marginalized could connect to Barbara Streisand because they knew that she had been marginalized herself before she made it. Even even in the movie Meet the Parents, the character that she played was almost like that she sat back, looked at what was going on in the world with, with economics, and she said, I'm going to be a laid-back person that knows where peace can be found. And you know to this day that that role is a leadership role? You know, that was, by the way, just incidentally, this is a Barbara Streisand trivia question, but that was her highest grossing movie. But you also, I think, point out something interesting about Barbara Streisand. She never made a film that wasn't in some way personal to her. There's a lot of actors and actresses who, you know, make movies because they like the role or, you know, it's good for their career. But every movie... Even, you know, a guilt trip, you know, her last film uh, with Seth Rogen. Um, I mean, that was a personal film for her in which she was enacting her relationship to her son. You know, every one of her movies in some ways draws on her personal experience. And we feel that as we watch those films. You know, she's the one actress, more than any other actress, who's career conflates with her own life so that they become basically the same thing. She's always acting out her own life on screen and in her music as well. Yeah. So what is it about her current marriage where this one has lasted? What What is it about him that she just can't get enough of? Well, I'll tell you one of the things I think is strength. Because 
You have to be really strong, a really strong man to deal with Barbara Streisand. I don't say that because she's a diva or she's impossible or she's the B word or any of those things, all of which have been applied to her, that she's a monster. But I think that you just have to know yourself really well. You have to be really grounded because Barbara Streisand is grounded herself. Yep. She's a very strong woman. And maybe, it, and I think she would probably say this, it took this long in her life to find a man who had gone through all the life experiences and found himself at the end to be able to deal with her. And, you know, it's, there's no career uh, jealousy as there was when she was married to Ali Gould. Yep. There are none of the things that often muck up a relationship. Uh, now, you know, she's just sort of post-career, although she's going on a singing tour next month. But she herself said that her career was a kind of sublimation. And I think it was a sublimation for not finding the right man, for not finding personal happiness. Well, she doesn't need that now, because she has found personal happiness, apparently. That's a long, it's been a long marriage, and it seemingly is a very happy one, as you pointed out. One other thing, I would love to be a fly in the wall as she prepares for that new tour, because even though these songs are decades old, I'll bet you that she envisions somebody new who's going to discover that song in that arena or inside that house that is going to fall back in love with that song, maybe even for the very first time. She never takes her eye off who's listening. That's a great point, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I will extend that. She never coasts. You know, there are so many performers who can go out there and they can sing their songbook, and basically they're going through the motions. Because they know that the audience isn't really going to care. You know, they just want to hear the greatest hits. Barbara Streisand is a perfectionist, and she's taken a lot of grief for that as well. You know, people have said, oh, she's, she's just, you know, she's a terror because everything has to be exactly right. And she herself has said, you know, for a woman to be a perfectionist is to be called a monster. If a man is a perfectionist, it's, oh, look at how great he is. Look at how wonderful it is that he is is, is going to perfect every little thing she, he, he does. But you're right. I mean, she is very, very much in control of her performance, wants to be great every single time out, wants to make that connection with the audience. And it's one of the things that I think is, is allowed her career to endure for now 50 years years is that she never takes her foot off the accelerator. She's always has to be great. There's no second best. She said this early on in her career. You know, I'm not in this to be second best. I'm in this to be the best. See, and that's that's why I wish that the paparazzi would have left her alone when she was putting Yentl together, because I swear the American economy or the American fan was already being judgmental because those magazines wouldn't leave her alone because, oh, here she was producing and directing a, a movie of her own. I think people, if they would go back and watch that, they would see a different Barbara Streisand. Well, you know, she came out at a time in Hollywood when you had to know your place if you were a woman. And she has said this as well. You know, you know you're a singer, so why can't you know your place and just be a singer? Why do you have to be an actress? And you're an actress. Why can't you just know your place and, and be an actress? Why do you have to become a producer, which you did on the Stars Board? And you're a producer. Why can't you just stay in your place? And why do you have to become a director? And then she became a director. And, and all along, there was this criticism that she didn't know her place. There's a wonderful story about 
about Walter Matthau, who's her co-star, and Hello, Dolly. And he couldn't stand her. You know, he was a journeyman actor. He felt he paid his dues. And here comes this young whippersnapper. I think she was 26 years old at the time. And she was the biggest star in Hollywood. And he just, you know, it, 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 it was tremendous resentment at this young woman having the kind of power that, that she had. And he went to the head of the studio, Richard Zanuck, and he said, I, I just can't work with her. I, I can't stand her. She just makes me sick. And Zanuck said to her, the movie is not called Hello, Walter. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think in some ways that encapsulates a lot of the, the resentment that she did engender, that men couldn't stand the fact, men in Hollywood couldn't stand the fact that she was this big a star, that she cared so much, that she wasn't submissive, that she wasn't passive. You know, so many female stars had been because they felt they had to be. You know, you had to be submissive. Well, Barbara Streisand wasn't. Do you find that you were called to write this book? And the reason why I bring that up is because as we are crossing the lines into, you know, we've gone from Gen X to now the millennials. We needed your words, Neil, to reignite something that we already know. But those millennials do not know. Well, I appreciate that very much. I do feel in a way I was called to write this book because, you know, now she's, you know, nearing the end of her career. She's going to be 75 years old next year. And I really felt there had been other biographies written, and this is really not technically a biography. It's much more of what I would call a biographical essay. It's a shortish book, but it's a book that really does, as I said earlier, try to take her measure and try to explain to another generation who she is, what she meant, and what makes her great. And and so, yes, in that sense, I really do feel that, um, you know, I was sort of the guy who, 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 was, who was made to write this book about her because I didn't come to it as a Gaga fan. Yeah. I came to it as someone who appreciated the cultural influence she'd had. Um, and in the course of writing the book, I became more of a fan because you can't help but listen to Barbara Streisand. I listen to an awful lot of her without finally succumbing. I mean, she is just a great performer, whether it's singing or whether it's acting. Uh, she's just a great performer. She wears you down. As she often wears down the, the male leads in her movies. Not Walter Matthau, but the others. <laughs> There's got to be a piece of her inside of you now, man, because you can't just stop writing the book. She, she's got to be very much alive inside your heart. Well, you learn a lot about fortitude when you study Barbara Streisand. You learn a lot about overcoming the odds because, you know, we talked about her nose and whatever, but, you know, there were just so many, so many slights that she took when she was coming up. So many people, including her own mother, who told her when she said to her mother, I want to be a movie star, and her mother said, no, you're never going to be a movie star. You're not attractive enough. You ought to be a secretary. Oh. And, you know, Barbara Streisand, is, as many of us know, you know, has very long nails, and she said, you know why I grew those nails? So I could never type. <laughs> but the, but the, my point is that, you know, you, 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 you delve into her life, and you can't help but absorb that sense of fortitude that, and defiance that nothing will ever knock her down. And, and you absorb it yourself and say, you know, Barbara Streisand always did everything on her own terms. Huh. Always did everything on her own terms. And I think she teaches us, and I conclude the book this way, how we do things, how we can do things on our own terms. It's a, it's a life lesson that she conveyed in her music and in her films and in her life.